Hello and uh, welcome uh, everyone. Good uh, morning or good afternoon or good evening, wherever you are. My name is uh, Maurizio Cecconi. I am uh, the president of the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine. I'm the host of this uh, 30 Minutes with uh, uh, webinar today. Uh, it's a great honor, a great pleasure to welcome uh, a friend and a, a very important intensivist from India, Professor Sheila Naina Miatra. Hello, Sheila, how are you? Hello, um, hello everyone. And, uh, at the outset, I'd like to say a big thank you to ESICM for giving me this opportunity. It is indeed a great honor to be interviewed by the president of ESICM. Thank you. Thank you, Sheila, but the honors really is ours, just for everyone. I don't think uh, Sheila needs a lot of introduction, but she's a professor of intensive care at Tata Memorial Hospital in Mumbai, uh, in India. She's also the president-elect for 2022 of the Indian Society of Critical Care Medicine. And her research, uh, as we know, includes interests like hemodynamic monitoring, uh, airway management, respiratory failure, and sepsis. So I can go for a bit longer, but I think this is a summary of what you do, Sheila. So Sheila, first of all, um, how are you and how's the situation in India at the moment? I'm very well, Maurizio, thank you. Well, fortunately for us now, the situation in India is quite calm. The cases have started going down and things have started opening up. And as you may have heard in the news a few weeks ago, uh, we completed, uh, you know, one billion doses of the vaccine was, um, you know, uh, given uh, already. So, but after the devastating second wave, we have become very cautious. So we are anticipating a third wave and uh, we're preparing for the worst, but we are, uh, you know, we were hoping for the best. And so things are better, but um, I hope they remain like this. Touch wood. Very good. Well, one billion doses is a, a very large number, but India is a, is a large country. And yeah. how does it compare in terms of percentages of people vaccinated? So, of course, that's just, uh, that's not enough with a population of 1.35 billion. Uh, people, you need much more doses, and it's really a challenge to vaccinate uh, so many people. By the time you finish giving the second dose uh, to a few individuals, you have a whole lot of people still remaining to get vaccinated. So it's a real challenge vaccinating such a large uh, population, but the government is really trying uh, very hard to achieve these targets. Very good. Uh, just before I go on with other questions, we are receiving questions also from our platform, and I would like to remind everyone that you can post them. Uh, uh, questions and we have our social media team. Uh, I always like to thank uh, Adrian Wong, our chair of the Social Media Digital Content Committee, because they do an, an immense work in trying to keep these webinars as interactive as possible. Um, Sheila, you seem to jiggle a lot of things in your uh, daily work, clinical work, research, uh, you participate in many national and international societies. Uh, can you tell us a little bit, how is your working day? How does it look like? Right. Uh, absolutely right. Uh, you know, my friends, they call me a juggler because I try to juggle around with too many things at the same time. Work has become very busy, actually more busy than pre-COVID times. And uh, I work at the Tata Memorial Hospital, which is one of the largest cancer centers in the world. So as you know, cancer is a semi-emergency. So we have been operating and uh, giving therapies throughout the pandemic. And whatever backlog has really, you know, there's been like a rebound and there's so much to catch, catching up on, as is in, I'm sure, in most parts of the world. 
But with this huge population and the low proportion of uh, doctors in proportion to the uh, patients, the workload has become really huge. So just after this long COVID period that we had, uh, you know, now with the cases coming back, coming down, we are actually having to cope with a huge, huge backlog of uh, cases. So it's busy. Very, very good. And can you tell us a bit more about the, the place where you work? What, what, do, what do you actually do at uh, the Tata Memorial Hospital? Right. So as I mentioned, this is uh, Asia's largest cancer center. So I work in a mixed medical surgical uh, intensive care unit. And I only work with cancer patients. So I do uh, oncocritical care. So a bulk of our patients are with neutropenic sepsis, bone marrow transplant, and these kind of patients. I also do a bit of anesthesia. And uh, that's where I get huge opportunity to do uh, airway management because being a cancer center, we have the highest uh, workload of um, head and neck cancers. And that gives me a lot of challenging, uh, difficult airway cases to deal with. So this is uh, just a summary of the kind of work that I do. So, and indeed, you did quite a bit of research and, uh, and published on airway management uh, uh, in intensive care. Can you tell us a bit more how these, uh, did passion start for you about uh, airway management? And then we have other questions that are coming from, from the chat. Right. Uh, thank you for asking me that question, Maurizio. Airway management is really a passion for me. Uh, it's not surprising that I'm interested in airway management because uh, by training, uh, primary training, I'm an anesthesiologist. So um, quite naturally, I got interested in airway management. Then I work in a cancer center where we have a huge volume of head and neck cancer cases. So obviously, I became quite an expert in difficult airway management. But then when I moved to do intensive care, uh, you know, I became very confident. I said, OK, I'm very good at airway management, so this should be easy. But it was a big surprise for me because I realized that all along I've been focusing on the anatomically difficult airway. And what ICU gives you a bigger challenge is in addition to the anatomically difficult airway, you also have a physiologically difficult airway. Patients have hypotension, hypoxia, right ventricular failure, and many other complications. And these increase the risk of um, uh, complications that occur during airway management. And uh, this uh, made me realize how casually anesthesiologists take airway management in the intensive care unit, thinking they're experts. And intensivists, uh, you know, um, uh, from other specialities, take airway management very lightly. And it became like a mission for me uh, to improve, you know, just recognizing that the complications in airway management are so high. Uh, I said, I must do something about this to increase the awareness one about the complications and what we could do to prevent this. We actually wrote an editorial once saying tracheal intubation in ICU, life-saving or life-threatening, because we wanted people to be aware of the fact that this life-saving intervention can actually result in life-threatening complications if they are not managed properly. And that's what you found out recently also in a large observational study, if I'm not wrong, right? Right. Uh, so this was the Intube study, which was led uh, by uh, Dr. Vincenzo Risotto and uh, uh, Professor Bellani from Italy. I was very fortunate to be given the opportunity to lead this trial uh, in India and be the second author in the JAMA paper. Uh, it was a global study, 3,000 patients, observational study, looking at uh, the, um, the practices of tracheal intubation in the intensive care unit, the largest study ever. And the primary endpoint was looking at the complications. And what was very you know, uh, surprising was that 45% uh, incidence of complications and 42% 
was hemodynamic complications, which was a real surprise finding because all along we've always thought about hypoxia and these kind of respiratory complications, uh, you know, occurring during airway management. But I think over time we've become good at peri-intubation, uh, peri oxygenation, and the respiratory complications have actually gone down. But what is really high are the hemodynamic complications. And this is an area where we really need to focus with future research to prevent these complications. And physiologically, there are a lot of reasons for which an intubation, of course, uh, interfering with heart-lung interactions can lead to that, actually. That's often some of the right. topics we discuss at our hemodynamic monitoring workshops. Maybe we come back to that uh, uh, later. And Sheila, just before we move to uh, uh, another topic, but I have some questions about how would you train people to be safer uh, in terms of patient safety uh, in intensive care. One thing that comes to my mind, I, I work in different countries um, and I still have seen that, uh, for instance, entitled CO2 is something that in the operating room you would not even dream to uh, start an operation without. But still in the intensive care, it's not something that uh, is uh, performed regularly at every uh, intubation. And if I'm not wrong, that was also something that you found out also in the tube study, right? right. I'm, I'm very happy you asked me this question, Maurizio. The intube study actually showed that only 25% uh, of ICUs are using capnography to confirm tracheal intubation. Now, th this is not just in the developing world, but also in the developed world, which is a very uh, surprise finding 10 years after the National Audit Project uh, you know, highlighted in the subgroup of the complications that occurred in the ICU about increased morbidity and mortality associated with not using capnography, even 10 years later, where we haven't improved much. And this is definitely an area where we can improve awareness and make uh, the availability of uh, capnography and make it uh, a mandatory uh, check after tracheal intubation to confirm uh, that the tube is in the uh, right position. So I think it's time to move to another topic that I see uh, here. Um, Heart-lung interaction, but this time uh, not the effect of intubation, but uh, the effect of ventilators and prediction of fluid responsiveness. Uh, you are very proud of having developed one of the tests, which I think is the tidal volume challenge. Can you tell us a bit more the idea behind it and if you actually use it in your practice? Right. Thank you so much for asking me this question. The Tidal Volume Challenge is a relatively new test that we've uh, developed in our unit, and this is used to assess uh, fluid responsiveness. And, um, you know, one of the biggest challenges in uh, assessing fluid responsiveness in when you use the tests, uh, which are based on heart-lung interactions, which is most of them, whether you use echocardiography, IVC variability, pulse pressure variation, stroke volume variation, the biggest challenge is the use of low tidal volume. So today we're not ventilating patients with uh, you know, high tidal volume. Almost all patients in ICU are ventilated with six ml per kg. Uh, so these tests, which are very reliable in patients with uh, ventilated eight ml per kg are not reliable in patients ventilated at low tidal volume. So you have very good tests like pulse pressure variation, stroke volume variation, but they're not reliable in at six ml per kg. So I, I, we thought in our unit that, okay, you have very good tests, but they're not reliable at 6 ml. They're very reliable at 8 ml. So why don't we transiently increase the tidal volume from 6 ml per kg to 8 ml per kg for one minute, and then look at the pulse pressure variation or stroke volume variation. This may be able to mask uh, the fluid, unmask the fluid responsive uh, patients. And then of course, bring the tidal volume back uh, to 6 ml per kg. 
And uh, when we studied this in our unit, we found uh, that the tidal volume challenge is very simple test uh, that just involves tweaking the ventilator button, no change in position of the patient, and uh, not even the requirement of a cardiac output monitor when you use pulse pressure variation uh, could quite reliably predict uh, fluid responsiveness. And subsequently, and in your unit, you've done two studies to validate this, uh, not only in the uh, you know, intensive care unit, but also in the operating room, in patients in supine position, prone position, now it's used for laparoscopic surgeries. And more recently, there's a study that's looked at it uh, during spontaneous uh, breathing attempts. So um, it's been widely uh, validated internationally, and I'm very proud that this test uh, originated from my unit. And we're doing more and more uh, studies now using this test to expand the uh, application applicability of this test in other, you know, to improve the reliability of other tests that use uh, heart-lung interactions. Thank you, Sheila. Uh, and indeed, we are also doing research in this, but, but I admit that I find always these uh, studies very fascinating from a physiological uh, point of view and in a very controlled environment and by uh, taking the waves and doing the measurements, they, they perform well. But I admit that in real life practice, it's not always easy to see these little changes if you are at three o'clock at night alone uh, in the ICU. Um, do you have the same issues or uh, have you find out uh, a way to standardize the way you look at this test? And yes, I, I agree with you. Um, so what we look at is a change in pulse pressure variation by more than 3.5 would predict fluid responsiveness after giving the tidal volume challenge. But of course, there are limitations. So I would say a combination of all these tests, along with your clinical assessment, is paramount during uh, you know, managing uh, these patients. And no test is perfect. So you have to use a good balance uh, along with clinical assessment. Very good. Um, on top of this uh, type of research, I know that you have been uh, leading uh, in India some large randomized control trials, especially during... Uh, this pandemic, if I'm not mistaken, the COVID steroid 2 uh, trial. Uh, can you tell us a little bit, because I know that India has been particularly affected by the pandemic, and I know uh, myself that it's not so easy to do clinical work and research, and especially if you don't have a research infrastructure in place. Uh, what are the challenges that you faced? How did you overcome those? Uh, thank you so much for this uh, question. Uh, the COVID steroid 2 trial that was just published a few days back in JAMA, as you know, it was a trial led uh, by Professor Perner from uh, Denmark, and it was a trial between the Scandinavian countries and India. So initially when we were approached, it was a real challenge because I was thinking here we are in the midst of COVID, we're barely able to handle the situation. Will we be able to do a randomized controlled trial? Uh, you know, and we were looking at like thousand patients. So uh, it was a real challenge to recruit uh, 13 sites to do the study and almost 40% of the patients come from India in this trial. And, uh, you know, not only that, just even the infrastructure for research, people had limited st staffing during the pandemic, getting everything set up. So it was really a challenge to do this in the midst of a pandemic. And what it really proved is that this is the time for global collaboration. We need data. Imagine comparing Scandinavia with India, a country with very high infection rate and low infection rate. So, you know, these are real, real world studies and together collaborating, we were able to achieve um, uh, something really uh, big. And it taught us that this is doable uh, even in India to participate in uh, randomized controlled trials, large global trials. So it was um, a kind of test for us, but I'm very proud that we were able to achieve this and in the midst of a pandemic. And as you know, this was the trial uh, after the recovery study, which used six milligram of dexamethasone. This was a study comparing six milligram and 12 milligram of uh, dexamethasone in um, 
patients with hypoxemia and COVID-19. And um, the trial, of course, uh, showed no difference. And this was also very important in India because we were using very high doses. Mucomycosis was a concern uh, during the pandemic. And, um, you know, we were concerned about the doses that we were using. So this was the next uh, answer, you know, question that um, because steroids had not been compared head on and whether six milligram was enough or we needed a higher dose. So I think this is a very, very important study. And clinically, of course, it showed that a dose of 12 milligram uh, may be uh, more superior. But statistically, there was no difference between six milligram dexamethasone and 12 milligram dexamethasone. Very good and congratulations on that. Um, how do you transfer this knowledge uh, at the bedside or in the community? Uh, we've seen everywhere in the world, actually, some issues with uh, uh, prescribing drugs that sometimes were not uh, uh, evidence-based. Maybe at the beginning you could argue that uh, it was uh, a difficult choice to make, uh, but now that we have these research platforms that are providing research at very fast speed, uh, I admit I really don't like to see all these uh, spread uh, uh, use of uh, drugs without uh, any evidence behind it, I suspect they can even harm. How is right. the situation in India in that respect? And, yeah, so I think it wasn't really very different in India. People were trying to do their best, right, everywhere in the world. And before, the evidence was still evolving, and we were trying to help patients. So, of course, we made many mistakes. We used many drugs that we should not have probably used. But everything was done uh, in the best interest, uh, you know, trying to save lives. So it's very good that evidence like this evolved very quickly. So, you know, we could have the answers uh, like the recovery trial, COVID-2 trial, and, you know, many other trials. Uh, so we, we evolved, our practices evolved over time and we could have more robust data and use the drugs and uh, therapies uh, to save more lives. I agree with you. And uh, the, I, I, I'm sorry to go back to something, but, there is a lot of interest about your expertise on airway management. And so we have a very specific question. For instance, cricot pressure in a, a rapid sequence induction for emergency cases. Is it worth doing? Is it uh, a futile doing? What's your practice? What's the evidence behind this? Right. So uh, cricot pressure has been controversial. And a large reason for this is because people don't give it correctly. So it's really not going to serve a purpose. And we've also had a big randomized controlled trial that has been published uh, showing no difference between a sham uh, procedure and uh, you know doing uh, giving cricoid pressure or not. So um, I do use it sometimes. I mean, you have to be sure you're giving it correctly. And again, it depends on the kind of patient and you know is he fasted or not, no harm in giving it, but there isn't any robust evidence to say that you should use it during a rapid sequence intubation anymore. Okay, and uh, in, uh, in case of uh, a surgical airway management, uh, is it cricoidectomy or uh, a surgical tracheostomy? What should we do? Right, so that, that's a very important question. So emergency, uh, you know, rescue, neck rescue, never yeah. a tracheostomy, it's always a cricotherotomy. So you have options like a surgical cricotherotomy or a needle cricotherotomy. Uh, uh, especially those who come from the anesthesiology background are very, very familiar with sticking needles and doing Seldinger techniques. But you must remember if you have a needle cricotherapy, you need jet ventilation. Uh, and this is not available in the intensive care unit. So there's no question that in the intensive care unit, emergency airway management, if you cannot access the airway from above, you have complete ventilation failure, you cannot ventilate using a mask or an, uh, rescue the airway with a supraglottic airway device or intubate the patient, 
you must proceed very rapidly to a neck rescue and uh, perform a surgical cryotherapy. And the scalpel bougie technique is a very simple technique which can be used universally because all you need is a scalpel, a bougie, and a, a small size tube. Very good. You make it uh, look like it's very easy, but I suspect uh, not many of us had to do it, luckily, if you manage the airways properly uh, before. And also probably to remember young intensivist or young trainee that the most important thing is to secure the ventilation, not just to secure well, the air. I'd just like to add that the best cricotherotomy is the one that you don't do. Exactly. So the most important thing is to prevent the situation, right? And uh, try not to uh, go down that path as far as possible. Uh, so I would say try to avoid a cryotherapy. But of course, you should learn how to do one just in case. I, I agree with you. That, that leads me to the next questions. And um, we've seen it in Europe. I've seen it uh, in Italy, but uh, also in the UK where I used to work before. Uh, we were lacking ICU beds before the pandemic. We were looking at how to increase the training numbers. Uh, the pandemic didn't make things easier, even if finally everyone has realized that we need to invest in developing more uh, ICU uh, beds. What has been the strategy in India uh, to increase for the surge of ICU beds? And maybe later we can come back on what are your plans for training and so on. Uh, thank you for this question. You know, uh, right when the cases started rising in Italy, even in China and then Italy, uh, we were really worried because we were thinking how with a country like India with such a big population, so much overcrowding and such limited infrastructure in terms of ICU beds manage. So uh, the first thing that we did is a very strict lockdown. I think we had the uh, you know biggest lockdown in the history of the planet. It was a very, very strict lockdown. And that gave us two months time. So COVID cases really rose in the middle of May. And during this time, what we did is we started uh, building facilities outside the hospital. Like we converted big stadiums, big, uh, big setups into uh, facilities so we could decongest the hospital because we realized we would never be able to manage if a huge number came into the hospital. But really, and I'm sure you agree, Maurizio, once you have this huge number of cases coming into the hospital, your, your system has already failed because this has to be you know, contained in the community. It's about public health, no healthcare system in the world. And we've seen the best of systems collapse during COVID can handle a surge, uh, you know, no matter how many beds you increase or ICUs you increase, this has to be controlled in the community. Yeah, and that's where public probably, health comes it's into. Probably, it's probably tunnel vision when you just think about increasing beds in the hospital, because often that leads to stopping other clinical activities to make space to COVID. So indeed, when there are outbreaks, We've seen more COVID coming to the hospital, but unfortunately, a lot of important care being delayed or put on hold. So I agree with you on that. Um, how is training in intensive care in India going now during the pandemic? Are people more attracted to the job or actually uh, are you finding it difficult to fill training numbers? I have to say in Europe, we are seeing a bit of both. So the specialty being under the spotlight and finally get, uh, got a little bit of recognition also from the media. But at the same time, the younger generation are a bit worried about burnout and work-life balance. Uh, how's it going where you live? Absolutely. Well, um, mixed reactions, because many of our COVID warriors, especially in the intensive care, we were, we were absolutely frontline. Many turned positive in the beginning of the pandemic. And that was, um, you know, quite, uh, quite a scary experience. We were short-staffed, so people were overworked. There was a lot of burnout. There was a lot of fear. But over time, uh, you know, we were looked at as heroes. 
uh, it made the ICU people be the absolute, you know, frontline, you know, we were uh, the intensivists, the one who were actually managing their sick patients. So it also gave a lot of glory. So there was a kind of mixed response. But what really happened, and I call it the silver lining on the cloud, the healthcare authorities, the government, uh, the people who really, uh, you know, make all the decisions, they realized what an intensivist is and what intensive care is and the importance of this. So it really brought us in the forefront. We never got this uh, importance before COVID occurred. So it was not a nice way to get it. But uh, I think there was a realization even among public that, you know, who an intensivist is and what an intensivist does. And, uh, it, you know, it really brought us in the limelight. So I think that was uh, that was one of the positives. And Sheila, uh, in intensive care in India, the Indian Society of Critical Care Medicine, if I'm not mistaken, you are the first female president-elect. Um, congratulations on this big achievement. And uh, what does it mean for you? Right. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Maurizio. Of course, it's a great feeling uh, to be, uh, you know, the president-elect of uh, a, 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 such a big uh, society. But uh, I cannot. I can say that I did not get elected because I was a woman. I got elected, of course, uh, because of merit. But uh, definitely, it it shows that you know there isn't, there shouldn't be any kind of, um, you know, it shouldn't be being a woman shouldn't be a deterrent to aspire for these conditions, uh, for these positions. And having uh, said that, you know, I must say that for women, they have to really work much harder because there are a lot of competing responsibilities uh, that they have. But definitely being a, a female in a society and uh, the future president, it inspires a lot of women across the globe to take up leadership positions, which is much required. So I hope this will be uh, inspiring for the future. And thank you, Sheila, and really congratulations again on this uh, important task. I'm sure you will lead the society very well. Um, uh, talking about collaboration, you made uh, also um, a lot of collaboration, scientific and clinical collaborations with other parts of the world. Uh, we've seen you linking uh, India and Asia in general more to, to Europe. Uh, what do you think should be the next phase of this collaboration or this network and what can we do with the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine uh, for India, for instance, or with oh, India? This is a fantastic question you asked me. Uh, you know, over the last five years, I have personally grown a lot because I've realized that we are all doing very good work, but we are working in silos. And it is really the time for collaboration. And COVID has also exposed this. You know, it's not that it's the developed world, it's just teaching the developing world. There are lessons to learn from everybody. And together we can do so much together for education, for research. And I think though we function individually as societies locally, this is really the time for collaboration, better collaboration. And I'm sure that will be our strength and the way forward uh, in future. Yes, and I'm very excited that we will have an event in India uh, indeed, uh, very soon together uh, with the Indian Society of uh, Critical Care Medicine in 2022. It's very important for us. And as you said, I, I like what you said about these collaborations globally. Uh, the pandemic has really taught us that we can all learn from each other. It was certainly the first time in my life where I was faced with a limited resource setting scenario. And I learned so much from colleagues around the world that were in that situation before. And they were telling me and teaching me and sharing how you can do with that. So I, I agree with you. It's a network about learning uh, from each other, about raising the standards everywhere. It's not about one teaching the other. 
and uh, uh, Sheila, in, uh, we are coming nearly to the end of these uh, uh, 30 minutes uh, uh, talk. Uh, I just would like to ask maybe uh, what would you like to, to say to a young intensivist or to a young uh, doctor or to a medical student that is about to choose intensive care medicine and now to develop a career. They can really look at uh, you and, uh, and be ambitious about having a career like yours. What would you recommend that they do? What should be the focus? What would you say to a young intensivist in India and maybe around the world? So I think this is very important uh, because they are our future. They are the future of intensive care. And I think it is our responsibility uh, to mentor them and get them interested in the speciality if we want to save more lives. And I would like to say to young people that don't just do intensive care uh, because you know it's glamorous or because there's money or whatever it is. Do it because you like it. Because if you don't like it, you can't make this your career. You have to like what you do. And if you don't, then you shouldn't be in this uh, speciality. And uh, intensive care is one speciality where there's a lot of action. There's so much happening. There's so much variation. You're challenged every day. There's so much to learn. So I think, you know, uh, doing what you do with passion can really keep the interest going. And um, I'd like to say that, especially uh, for people uh, from uh, parts of the world, like where I come from, if you're really interested in research, you should find a good mentor. You need to, you know, you know, identify the area of interest, uh, go and work in a center where, you know, there, there is more cases of what you like to do and your research. So you should find a good mentor and not just uh, go along, uh, you know, doing what you're doing. And this way you can really move uh, forward. And uh, my last message would be, uh, you know, no matter how brilliant you are, there is no substitute for hard work. So if you want to be successful, you have to really work hard. And most importantly, what COVID has taught me is you have to take care of yourself. Uh, critical care is a very uh, high intensity specialty. There's a lot of burnout. So you have to develop some interest or have something else to do so that you don't get uh, burnt out uh, just doing intensive care every day. So that is what I'd like to say to young people. I agree with you. It's, it's about taking care of uh, oneself, but also the others of the team. And uh, as we often uh, like to repeat uh, with our society is that we are intensive care because intensive care is about the team. Um, Sheila, it's been a fantastic uh, to spend some time with you. Thank you so much for sharing what you do, your knowledge and uh, how you developed uh, your interest and in your research and your clinical work. Uh, it's been a great pleasure. So uh, thank you, Sheila, and uh, thank you everyone for watching. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Maurizio, and thank you so much, ESICM.